The debrief is a production of faculty at the National Security Affairs Department at the U.S. Naval War College. The views presented here are those of the speakers and do not represent the positions of the Department of Defense or any of its components. Welcome, everyone, to this edition of the Debrief Podcast, a production of the National Security Affairs Department of the U.S. Naval War College. I'm your co-host, Nick Vozdev, professor in the National Security Affairs Department. Today we're going to tackle the subject of deterrence, and I'm very pleased to have two of my colleagues here with us uh, to discuss that. Uh, to my immediate left, uh, Professor Dana Struckman, Deputy Chair of the National Security Affairs Department. And uh, further to my left, uh, Professor Terence Rorig, uh, both a specialist on deterrence, uh, but also uh, in the affairs of East Asia, and particularly of the Korean Peninsula, which has been a test case for deterrence uh, over the last uh, number of years. So we're looking forward to exploring and unpacking these topics uh, in the course of our conversation today. Uh, a reminder that uh, we'll be taking part in this conversation uh, with our personal assessments only. Uh, none of what we say today reflects any official position of the U.S. Naval War College, of the U.S. Navy, or of the Department of Defense. Uh, and so with that, gentlemen, to start off perhaps uh, with the overarching question that much of the audience may have, what is deterrence? Sure, let me start with that one. Deterrence is the use of threats to try to convince an adversary to not take an action that you wish they would not take. By imposing or threatening to impose costs that may raise it beyond any sort of perceived benefits that the adversary may think it will gain by crossing that line. You try to make clear demands, you try to have credible threats, and these credible threats have to be based on having first the capability to actually carry out the threat, and then also demonstrate the resolve to do so. But then also there have to be credible assurances to the adversary so that they know if they don't cross the line they will and behave that they won't get whacked regardless. And all of this having to be done through the eyes of the adversary because they are the only one that get to make the decision of whether deterrence is going to succeed. You have to convince them it is a, it is a coercive mind game in many respects and only they get to, to essentially answer that question. Just quickly also, we often look at deterrence through two different lenses, deterrence by denial, where you have the defensive capabilities to either defeat the attack or the action that you are trying to prevent the adversary from taking, or even if perhaps you might still lose, you can put up enough of a defense that it's too costly and the adversary decides not to take the action. This has often been the way we have thought of deterrence in conventional contexts in pre-nuclear days. But then, of course, with nuclear weapons, um, prior to, to those assets, there had always been sort of a question of, of measuring the military balance and deciding whether you had enough to deter. Nuclear weapons made those calculations pretty simple because now it wasn't about defense, it was about punishment of an adversary. And in particular, again, even if you lost, um, you still 
would have the ability to be able to punish an adversary with a nuclear strike. And so deterrence was grounded on the notion of having that ability to survive a first strike and have enough capability survive to be able to retaliate on an adversary and therefore have them not consider the action in the first place. Yeah. Dana, since uh, maybe bringing in not only your academic background, but certainly your practitioner experience, because before coming to, to teach and research uh, at the War College, you were a, a longtime practitioner of the deterrent Correct. arts in the Air Force. So uh, can you give us sure. a sense more of this, uh, of the capabilities sure. for yeah. deterrence? And, and just, just dovetailing on, on what Terry, how you laid it out uh, uh, quite succinctly. Um, you know, people then ask, okay, if that's the case, then then why do we have a triad? Why is there a, a nuclear triad? And quite simply, it's to have that second strike capability, as, as Terry described, and a survivable second strike capability in order to punish uh, the adversary to the a point of the extreme. Uh, and so I can get into mutually assured destruction in a minute, but the nuclear triad is important because it provides three capabilities that both, all three, provide specific attributes. Uh, obviously, the bomber force is very flexible, and it's also recallable. But it also provides that visual mm. sense of security to our adversaries to say, yes, we can launch this. And it's a visual cue that someone can look at and say, yes, that deterrent is real. It does exist, and it is capable. Uh, our land-based uh, uh, deterrent, the ICBM force, uh, is provides an extreme targeting problem for the adversary. With over 400 ICBMs that are scattered across the heartland of the United States, uh, they would have to employ a tremendous amount, probably most of their strategic nuclear assets, in order to take out those targets. And ICBMs are also the most responsive. They can really respond on a moment's notice. So that provides that you know, responsiveness along with the, the uh, flexibility of the bomber force. And then obviously the submarine force the most stealthy, the most survivable. Uh, they can be anywhere in the world and no one really knows where they're at, obviously, uh, very hard to detect. So with those three legs of the triad provides the strategic attributes for that second strike capability and the, the uh, strategic deterrent capability that we have today. So that would suggest as well that with some of these proposals we've heard over the years of eliminating legs of the triad, uh, may not, maybe for cost-cutting measures, but not really enhancing our deterrent sure. capability. Right, and, and you, the argument for years has been, well, the the uh, uh, the ICBM leg of the triad is probably the most expendable. We could probably get rid of that one and we'd have enough uh, with the bomber force and the subforce. That may be true, uh, however, you take away the targeting problem for the adversary, and the strategic value of the ICBMs is not only the responsiveness, but just their mere location. Located in the heart of the United States, any attack is going to be an unambiguous attack on the homeland, which is going to provide a, you know, an extreme response from one of the other two legs, or if not both of the other two legs of the triad. And also, if you take away those strategic targets, you take your target set down from 400, 500 plus down to, you know, just dozens, which could be possibly be taken out by a uh, conventional force, which may make, some would argue, uh, an attack on the United States homeland even more likely uh, in the future. Well, Terry, this seems to then come back to some of the points you laid out at the beginning that 
Uh, deterrence is about inculcating in the mind of a potential adversary uh, that the costs of action are much higher than any perceived benefit. And what Dana has laid out here is that essentially uh, trying to deprive the United States of its nuclear force uh, by a competitor power uh, would just be so risky and so costly as to not, not worth it to even engage in it uh, in the first place. But how does that play out in other places with countries with much smaller nuclear forces? So I'm thinking, for example, North Korea, which doesn't have, uh, first of all, doesn't have the space uh, to spread out its nuclear force, uh, no matter what the estimates are, does not have uh, hundreds or thousands uh, of nuclear devices. How does, a, how does a smaller nuclear power like North Korea engage in credible deterrence? Well, and, and of course, that has been one of the major changes in the security environment on the Korean Peninsula is that over the last few years, North Korea has been able to demonstrate that it has a ballistic missile that can reach the United States. There is still some question about whether they have actually been able to master the technology to fit a nuclear warhead on that ballistic missile. But here's where credibility is not necessarily about absolutes. Um, if there is a 20, 30 percent chance they have figured this out, is that enough for North Korea to be able to get some level of deterrence effect on the United States? Because I think, as you framed your question, it's really important to remember that while we are trying in conjunction with our ally South Korea to deter the North, they are also as well trying to deter us and what we think is the primary motive of acquiring their nuclear capability is to be able to ensure regime survivability. Now with that said, one of the big concerns about credibility is, and, and this is where when you talk about deterrence, a lot of what we have talked about is in the context of what is usually identified as primary deterrence, where you are trying to deter an attack against yourself. Resolve, um, certainty that you are going to retaliate, no one doubts that that's going to happen when you yourself is attacked. But in the context of South Korea and the United States, now it's extended deterrence. And that is inherently a tougher problem because you are trying to demonstrate that you in fact would defend an ally when you might end up taking on some direct cost. And so up to this point, up to the last number of years, it was pretty clear the United States could intervene in a Korean scenario and defend the South without any fear at all of North Korean retaliation on the U.S. homeland. But now, with some of this question that North Korea may be able to reach the U.S. homeland with a nuclear weapon, now it raises more questions about extended deterrence and U.S. resolve. Will the United States trade Los Angeles for Seoul, um, to use that former European um, phrasing? And that is what makes deterrence more challenging in this Asian context. Right. And that's really, that's really the, the issue with, with North Korea, is that they don't have an extended range, like a test range like we do, or like, like developed countries do, to you know, make sure they, the, the missile that they have and mated with a reentry vehicle, if they st indeed have that, that science down yet, which is very, very difficult, by the way, 
uh, in order to fully flight test that to make sure that it's number one it survives and it can survive reentry and that it can hit its intended target. They haven't really demonstrated that yet, but really do they need to, to Terry's point? Do they have enough credibility at 25 or 30 percent in order to say, give us pause to say, okay, um, what is the future of extended deterrence now? Uh, and so that's, that's really, really a significant issue that we need to grapple with over the, you know, in the foreseeable future. And just Please. to add, what, what you have seen over the last couple of years is a significant effort, particularly by the Biden administration, to try to demonstrate that there, in fact, would be that U.S. commitment, despite what the North Koreans may have been able to build in regards to nuclear capability, to show that there is significant risk on the North Koreans' part if they do decide to challenge that. And I think most of the assessments are North Korea would not directly launch against the United States unless their regime were threatened. Then all options are on the table. But that the risks are so high, and they do not have the capability to attempt anything like a first strike against the United States without a lot of bad things happening. Well, listening to this, it really seems that deterrence isn't simply a matter of, of cold calculation of counting up missiles, counting up capabilities, but that it is very, it's psychological, it's cognitive, uh, that it's what's going in the minds of decision makers. Do I think you have what you have? What's my level of risk? What's my assessment? Are you really prepared to do this or not? Uh, some sense that you have from your long experience in, in, in working and studying these issues. Uh, is there a way for us to, I don't want to say predict, but uh, is there a way for us to kind of assess the uh, workability of deterrence as a, as a policy uh, issue to say we are committed to deter and to have that be taken seriously in the absence of doing things like we're going to have to actually demonstrate test, test detonate a weapon, say, in order to demonstrate our seriousness. I mean, how do we convey that and how do uh, adversaries potentially interpret uh, those deterrence signals? Well, I think that's, that's the the, the, the incredibly frustrating and, and uh, complex question that we have to deal with is how do you move forward? It was easy in a bipolar world, right, uh, with the Soviet Union and the United States where near at almost nuclear parity. The, the idea of then mutually assured destruction worked, or at least gave the appearance of working. Uh, now with the fact that, that there are probably less nuclear weapons in the world today, but more nuclear powers in the world today makes everything infinitely more complex. And how do you demonstrate that? And I think one of the things that, that we have to continue to do, at least as far as, with, as nuclear weapons are concerned, is the fact that you have to continually demonstrate the credibility, the capability, and the will. And how do we do that? We do that on a daily basis. Uh, with ICBMs on alert 24-7, with uh, uh, our SSBN force uh, out to sea uh, constantly, with our bomber force ready to go on a moment's notice. We have to demonstrate that capability and that will to do so. If you don't demonstrate that, then what does it mean? Uh, and from that, you know, comes uh, many, many more problems. And, I mean, deterrence as, as a strategy is is really very hard to demonstrate causality and, and to prove it, because deterrence 
that is successful, nothing happens. And so how do you prove what the factors were that were in play, what made a difference? Perhaps the adversary wasn't going to, to cross that line that you drew anyway. And so what are all those different elements? When you look at the strategic nuclear realm, how much does it actually take to deter? And we don't know. As, as your question suggests, there is no precise calculation of capability and looking at adversary intent and those things. So it really makes it very, very difficult. But, but to turn around my, my comment earlier that, well, 30% of North Korean capability, is that enough to deter us? Well, how much of a percentage of credibility does it take to deter North Korea? It may be a lot less, or, or the Russians or the Chinese, it may be a lot less than what we think it is. But in the context of extended deterrence, there's an old saying that a, a British defense minister said that it takes 95 percent credibility to reassure an ally of our resolve but maybe only 5% to deter the adversary. And that's a tough balance to maintain, that it, it may be easier to deter an adversary than we think, but on the short end of that, we, we just don't know because it is so hard to determine causality and factors, et cetera. It may be hard to determine, but at the end of the day, policymakers still have to make choices, defense officials still need to deploy, Congress needs to appropriate, uh, and so, as you're looking at the situation, this complex situation you've described, fewer nuclear weapons, more nuclear powers, more crises, what's your sense of how the United States is, is pivoting to deal away, at Dana, as you said, from the simpler time of the Cold War, where really there were just two major nuclear powers. There were other nuclear states, but really it was two right. powers, to this more multipolar nuclear world, uh, where the United States perhaps doesn't want to go back and can't because of the treaties that we've signed to a much larger number of nuclear weapons, yet must consider Russia, China, North Korea, the fact that we have other nuclear powers that may be partners of the United States but uh, will independently make their own decisions. Uh, what are you seeing as we move forward? What's the state of discussion for what nuclear deterrence for the United States looks like for the mid-21st century? Okay, when we're talking about um mutually assured destruction and how it applied during the height of the Cold War, at least how we thought it applied, and we thought that it worked. There's a lot of literature out there today that is, is in a lot of unclassified or previously classified reports that are saying that maybe it didn't work quite as well as we thought it did, because we were reacting to technology, not necessarily the psychology of deterrence, uh, thinking that our adversary, that the Soviets are one step ahead of us, we must compete, rather than just assuming that mutually assured destruction, our current nuclear capabilities were strong enough to deter them. We just kept having to do the one-upsmanship, uh, if you will. Um, now we're, we're in a space where is that we need to really rethink that as we move forward and look at new nuclear postures and nuclear posture reviews and, the, and nuclear strategies. Uh, are we at a, at a time where it's it's less mutually assured destruction and more mutually assured retaliation, as, as some pundits have, have posited. And maybe it is. And what does that look like? Is it always a nuclear reaction, or is it a, a non-nuclear reaction, or is it it's something, some other type of, of response? Uh, that could be figured into the calculation. 
Um, however, the nuclear modernization is, is still on the table, and it's still something that I think that uh, right now the policymakers uh, are really uh, making a concerted effort to make sure that we uh, modernize all three legs of the triad, uh, because right now we are kind of in a stasis where things are wearing out and we need to, need to take action. And it's going to take a lot of money and a lot of effort. But with the complex situation that we're in and the, the nuclear genie is not going back in the bottle, uh, this is something that we obviously, that now is not the time to put the, the nuclear deterrent on the shelf or think that nuclear forces aren't going to work anymore. So this is the time to really step out and, and do the modernization effort. It's not going to be cheap. It's not going to be easy. But I, I like to quote my friend uh, Major General Mike Lutton of the 20th Air Force Commander, who basically said, we don't need better or, or, or we just need more newer, or not necessarily more, we need newer. Uh, uh, and so I think that the, there he's, he's kind of striking the balance between uh, ensuring that we're not just chasing technology or not just chasing what we think the other side has, but we're, we're are, are moving our nuclear forces toward a modern and sustainable future. And I think sustainability is a key point because uh, in an environment where so many demands are now being made on resources, uh, we don't have the unlimited budget just as we in some ways did during the Cold War Correct. Uh, to Correct. focus on this and where we need to focus on a, a variety of nuclear powers, not just uh, one major, major adversary. Terry, your thoughts on nuclear strategy as we sure. move into the mid-21st century? Well, and, and of course, the, the key piece is that China is in a major modernization, but also expansion effort. I think there are still some questions regarding how much China is going to, to add to its current nuclear capability. And in many respects, not a surprise that China has gone in this direction as their um, long-term strategy approach that many China experts have, have argued is it's about assured retaliation. And over the last decade or so, I think Chinese leaders have become concerned about the size of their program, the, the configuration, to maintain that assured retaliation with um, U.S. strengths in precision-guided conventional weapons that could have the same strategic effects, missile defense, and other elements. But also, I think there's a prestige factor on the Chinese side. Um, there is also a concern that they may be deterred or, or that they are seeking to deter the United States from intervening in areas where they have interests, i.e., um, in regards to Taiwan and South China Sea, perhaps, because they don't have quite the same nuclear capability to match the United States. But it's not entirely clear whether China is going to move towards full parity with the United States. Um, they certainly are working on different capabilities that are going to, to have a technological piece to this as well. But nonetheless, even with China rising in its nuclear expansion efforts, it has created this dynamic of two major nuclear powers. And how does the United States respond to that? I think there's a lot of momentum in the direction that the United States needs to expand its nuclear program. 
But I have concerns about that, again, because of some of the, the pieces you raised, that we have a lot of other priorities. And it gets to that really fundamental question of how much does it take to deter? And there's, I think, often a, a, an automatic reaction that it's about more capability, more numbers. And is that really the answer, certainly in nuclear deterrence? And are there other areas where we have greater priority than nuclear capabilities, where deterrence may be much more solid than we think it is? But again, it's so hard to match numbers and you know come up with a very clear equation that produces the right answers. And this is where the, the, a lot of the literature today talking about, did MAD, the mutually assured destruction, work or did it not? And uh, you can obviously say, well, we didn't have, we haven't had a nuclear war, and we haven't, there hasn't been a nuclear weapon used since World War II, so yes, uh, it, it did work. That is one argument. Uh, but the fact that, that um, back then were the policymakers chasing the technology and the leaps forward that they thought they saw our adversaries taking, like, like Terry was talking about? Are we simply trying to match them? Or is our, are we satisfied that our deterrent force can de safely and effectively deter our adversaries to the point where we're fine? Our, our, our triad works. We do not need to expand. We don't need additional capability. We don't need more numbers. We just need to sustain and modernize what we know works. I think that's uh, very much going to be part of this discussion uh, as we move forward. I think that you've laid out some real issues here, uh, particularly this question of uh, nuclear strategy for the 21st century. As you know, I think uh, over-optimistically after 1991, people assumed that this question was a thing of the past that would recede once the Cold War was over. Uh, it's back but it's back in new forms, so we're not just simply pulling the old plans and dusting them off, uh, but that as you've raised questions of modernization, questions of numbers, questions of mindset, questions of uh, apples and oranges deterrence, that maybe not every nuclear deterrent could have a, be deterred by non-nuclear means. Uh, I think it's a very a rich tapestry that you've laid out for us uh, that uh, the students uh, definitely can grapple with, and I think, uh, uh, unfortunately, perhaps, for those of us that uh, lived through the, the first Cold War, uh, it's something that they're going to have to grapple with for the rest of their careers. So I'd like to thank you very much uh, for uh, starting them off uh, on this uh, discussion today, and I'd like to thank you all for tuning in to this edition of The Debrief.